High Center Studios of Messiah College. We try to get our students off of their phones during class here in Grantham, Pennsylvania. This is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode 52 of the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast. Drew, once again, today we are going to talk about some things that are near and dear to both of our hearts, teaching history. Absolutely. I mean, that, that is the very beginning of, of our, our passion, of our vocation, and I can't think of a better guest to help us navigate the current landscape of history pedagogy in America today. That's right, Drew. Sam Weinberg, Stanford University professor and the guru of history pedagogy and the teaching of historical thinking is with us today. He has a new book out. It's titled Why Study History When It's Already on Your Phone. Of course, I love this title, and I think you are also going to love the interview. It's hard to find someone with more passion and conviction about history education than Sam Weinberg. And let's not forget, this is actually his second appearance here on the show. Indeed. Weinberg was our guest on episode four of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Drew, what do you remember about that episode? Well, I have to be honest. Embarrassingly, I mostly just remember the terrible sound quality. That's right. Um, it was our first season. And as one of those first season guests who, who really has quite the name recognition, uh, we will obviously be forever indebted. And I'm still in awe about the quality of all of our first season guests. We were talking about that last episode. But I was also the producer and audio engineer that season. And let's just say I can't hold a candle to our very own Abby LaBianca there behind the glass. Abigail LaBianca, what would we do without her? I remember that episode vividly because we weren't together on that episode. I was in the guest quarters, the scholars residence at Mount Vernon in Virginia, George Washington's Mount Vernon. I was there on a visiting fellowship and we couldn't get good sound quality. So I took my laptop into the bathroom of my hotel room there and the echo helped the sound. <laughs> I remember sitting on the bathroom floor with headphones on interviewing Sam Weinberg uh, on that day. So that is an episode of the podcast that I, I will never forget. But again, Drew, that seems like such a long time ago. Um, it was actually February. I looked it up. It was actually February 2016. So uh, we've come a long way since then. We just celebrated our 50th episode and we're still going strong. Uh, but before we get to Sam, Tell us a little bit more about how to connect with the work we're doing here at The Way of Improvement Leads Home. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Head to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Richard Green, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, Margaret Graves, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future, as well as the Lindhurst Group. If you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewaveimprovement.com and click support. And the best way to spread the word is to tell a friend, tell them in person if you can. But if you also want to spread the word on social media, that helps too. You can follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on both Twitter and Facebook. And consider giving us that positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. Again, many thanks for everybody who supports and who listens uh, especially our patrons uh, who have teamed up with us in our Patreon campaign. Of 
course, our sponsors, the Lindhurst Group and Jennings College Consulting. Uh, we are coming to a close here of season five, and uh, we couldn't have done it without you. So thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you do to bring good podcasting, history podcasting to our democracy. Before we get to our conversation with Sam Weinberg, you have a few words for us, John. Last fall, I gave a lecture to my history students about a man of privilege, wealth, and power who took up the cause of a growing band of disgruntled, poor, fearful white Americans. These Americans believed that the government was not listening to their concerns. They were angry about their lack of opportunity and political representation. They felt threatened by their encounters with people from another race and culture. The man of privilege heard their cry and led them in a rebellion that temporarily drove the ruling class from power. To the extent that some of the ruling class own land near major rivers, it might even be fair to say that this rebellion was an attempt to drain the swamp. I have been teaching Bacon's Rebellion, which occurred in 1676, for 20 years, but I have never seen a classroom so engaged as this one. As I talked about this important moment in the history of 17th century Virginia, I noticed that many students were chuckling and whispering to their friends. Students who usually seemed to be barely alive during class raised their heads and began to listen. I never mentioned Donald Trump, but the current president of the United States seemed to be on everyone's mind. It would have been easy for me to draw an analogy, but I decided against it. This was a lecture about race, labor, social diversity, and political power in colonial Virginia. Historical analogies must always be employed with caution. The past is a foreign country. 17th century Virginia is very different than the 21st century United States. Presentism comes naturally to my students. If indeed, as our guest today, Sam Weinberg, tells us, historical thinking is an unnatural act, then my students need to work harder at ridding themselves of their presentist mindset and try to understand the colonial Chesapeake on its own terms. But I would be kidding myself if I thought that the teaching of the past does not take place in an ongoing conversation with the present. Though I did not call out Donald Trump by name, his election in November 2016 certainly helped my students connect in a deeper way to the subjects we explored. The Founding Fathers, slavery, Andrew Jackson, the coming of the Civil War in our United States History Survey class. Several months earlier, I was teaching a much smaller group of students in my upper division American Revolution class. Again, the spirit of the Trump campaign hovered over nearly every lecture and discussion. As scholars in our field talk more and more about, quote unquote, vast early America and the recovery of oppressed voices, I realized as the semester progressed that many of my students needed a serious refresher on the ideals and values that shaped the founding of the nation. The more traditional narrative, founding fathers, political ideas, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, seemed important again as students around campus began talking more and more about the relationship between Donald Trump and the values that have long defined what it means to be American. I am no Trump supporter, but I have a hunch that some of my students, or perhaps their parents, were part of the 81% of American evangelicals who would eventually pull the lever 
for the Republican nominee. So I treaded lightly. But as I prepared for class on November 9, 2017, I could not avoid being explicit about what had happened the previous night. I was horrified by the election of Donald Trump, but the classroom was not the place for a political rant. Instead, we talked about historical thinking, the difference between history and nostalgia, and the way Trump's campaign had used the past as a tool to win supporters in the present. We talked about the limited but important contributions that historians make to political discourse. Historians, I reminded my students, are concerned with the again in the phrase, make America great again. We could tell the public what America was really like in the early Republic or the 1950s, but it is not our primary goal to tell them whether such an era was great. Since many of my students are Christians, we talked a lot about the Christian America, the clenching narrative that Trump and his evangelical supporters used to win votes. We discussed fake news and the importance of learning how to evaluate sources critically. I even approached my usually boring and mundane session on how to write footnotes using the Chicago Manual of Style with a renewed sense of moral purpose. As Sam Weinberg writes, history is a discipline. History teaching requires discipline. For many of us, the election of Donald Trump has infused our teaching with new meaning. But let's always remember that the moral critique we bring to society is always more implicit than explicit. Sam Weinberg is the Margaret Jacks Professor of Education at Stanford University and the director of the Stanford History Education Group. He is the author of several books, including the award-winning Historical Thinking and Other Unnatural Acts, published with Temple University Press in 2001, and his current book, Why Learn History When It's Already on Your Phone, published in 2018 with the University of Chicago Press. Our guest today is none other than Sam Weinberg, author of Why Learn History When It's Already on Your Phone. Sam, welcome back to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Now, Sam, let's just dive right in. It seems like every year we read another report showing that high school students do not have a basic grasp of the facts of American history. But you suggest that, number one, there's nothing new about this. And then, number two, you think that the reason why they don't do well is because the entire testing system is rigged against these students. Explain what you mean by that. First of all, it's nothing new because we have been giving these kinds of objective tests to young people since 1917. And in 1917, the conclusion that was reached by the investigators who tested Texas high school students and Texas college students, just think for a second, pause, and think what stratum of society reached that level of higher education in the teens of the previous century. Right. The conclusion they reached, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it's a close paraphrase, surely a grade of 33 out of 100 on the simplest and most basic facts of American history is a record no high school can be proud. So I can draw a straight line from 1918 to a test that was conducted by the New York Times in 1942 
to a uh, 1976 bicentennial test given by the New York Times that was supervised by Bernard Balin, to the National Assessment of Educational Progress, the first one given in U.S. history in 1987, to the subsequent administrations of the National Assessment of Educational Progress. And I will show you a flat trend line from 1918. What, as I say to my future teachers, uh, that they can go and tell their students that they can be proud that they are no more ignorant than their great grandfathers. (laughs) So how's the system rigged? First, let me say that the inability of 17-year-olds to answer questions decontextualized from historical context does not mean that they are historically ignorant. To quote the communication theorist Michael Schutzen, historical knowledge has a way of seeping into our cultural pores, even if we can't recall it on a multiple choice test that is designed to distract us. The invention of the multiple choice test, which also goes back to the teens of the previous century, but really got its biggest boost by a guy who came up with the lazy teacher's machine, where the use of graphites and a scantron allowed allowed scoring to be mechanized. He then sold it to IBM for $15,000 and a promise of employment at IBM. This way of testing depends upon a, a concept in psychometrics called distraction. The wrong elements on a multiple choice test, the technical name for them is distractor. They are distractors. And if distractors don't work, then the testers that are making and designing the test remove them until they find distractors that do work. And so my favorite example is the 2010 NAEP that was given to eighth graders had a question of which nation allied with the North Koreans to fight the Americans in the Korean War. And the choices were China, the USSR, I think France, and another nation. Well, if students chose by chance, then a quarter of them would have gotten it right just by saying China. Mm -hmm. But the most responded to answer was the USSR. Now, what's going on here? Let's just pause and let me ask our listeners to think about what's going on here. What's going on, first of all, is we know that in the Korean War that, that practically every ounce of materiel that was provided to the North Koreans was provided by the Soviets. We know that the planes that were sent in bombing raids across the border were manned by Soviet pilots. The most decorated Soviet unit from World War II were flying in it. We know that it was Stalin, not Mao, who gave permission for the, for the North Koreans to cross that parallel. And so the goal is to distract students. Even historical accuracy is, can be sacrificed on the altar. We have an industry of, of testing where the goal is to trick students and have them pick the best answer among close answers. If the goal is about teaching students, then we should get out of the business of distraction and get into the business of teaching. So what would be the ideal assessment for a sort of high school history class? Are you, you know, is it the, the written essay or, you know, give me an example. We got a lot of teachers who listen to this. Give me an example of uh, a better form of assessment. Just one example. It really begs the question, John, of what is the purpose of the history classroom right. at the high school level? And you cannot answer that question without thinking about the particular historical context in which we dwell. 
We are dwelling at a time where the information pool is polluted, where young people are not turning to their textbook or turning to a static analog text to learn about the past. They're looking to their phone. They're Googling uh, whether the Democratic Party was in cahoots with Nazis in World War II and responsible for the Holocaust. They are Googling the claims that they find in convicted felon Dinesh D'Souza's America. That's right. They are looking at claims that there is a secret cabal, an international Jewish conspiracy that is really uh, governing the world order, the Zionist world order. And these are the kinds of narratives that compel people to go out and commit acts of murder. And so we are in a time where the idea of asking us to memorize the information that is more quickly accessed on our phones is absolutely foolhardy given the incredible challenges facing us as digital citizens. So an assessment that is worth its salt, that has a connection to cultivating the kinds of skills and ways of thinking that students need to face the internet in their daily life, well, we would need an assessment that lets students loose on the internet where they have to show their ability to discern quality, reliable information from sham. And this should happen in a history class, yes? Well, I think it should certainly happen in a history class for far more than it should happen in a chemistry class. Right. right. I mean, we are the discipline where we have long celebrated our ability to discern among contending, competing voices. Let's shift gears slightly here. And I want to come back to that because I want to talk about your Google experiment here in a second. But, but I'm moving through the book here. And chapter three of your book is called Committing Zins, Z-I-N-N-S. So all of the examples that the conspiracy theories and so forth that you just laid out in the answer to the last question were conspiracy theories, I think, that largely come from the right. You mentioned Dinesh D'Souza. You mentioned Holocaust deniers and so forth. Howard Zinn, you're also very critical of, who is obviously a voice from the left. So tell us why his very popular left-leaning American history textbook, A People's History of the United States, is so problematic. First, let me begin by by paying props to Howard Zinn. Howard Zinn was one of the first American historians who synthesized a great deal of the work on social history that restored the faceless to the narrative of American history, told the history of of groups and peoples that have been the victims of mass expulsion and attempts at extermination and chattel slavery, and have largely been recessed to the the margins of a narrative if they even appeared. So Howard Zinn's book does and has done a great deal of good in the world in ennobling the many, many people who built this country and who today comprise significant parts of its population. So let's first begin by the really positive contribution that this book has made. So many people, scores, thousands of people. This is a book that has sold 2 million copies. Thousands of people have been turned onto history 
by their encounter with a people's history of the United States. Now, when it came out, it was a powerful corrective in 1980. We were still at a time where we were unquestionably celebrating Columbus Day without understanding that Columbus enslaved the native peoples that he encountered, uh, would cut off their hands if they didn't meet the gold quota, because when they did not find enough gold, put them on a ship and brought them back as slaves to Europe in order to finance another expedition. These were things that were hidden from our Columbus Day celebrations that for many, many years, historians knew about, we've known about since, you know, De Las Casas wrote his critique in the 16th century. But these were things that Americans in general did not know. And so, you know, when, when Zinn put this out, it was revelatory to lay people. And in that sense, it encouraged many of them to dig harder and for many of them to go on to study history. Now, where does the problem come in? In the past 40 years, the book has gone from a gadfly that kind of buzzes around an, a national narrative to in many sectors, particularly in our elite colleges and universities, to one of the main kind of perspectives of American history. And what's the problem with that? Well, it's a kind of problem of monarchism. If you recall from the Confessions of St. Augustine, who was a monarchy before he saw the light and became a Christian, Mm -hmm. the monarchies believed that there were two forces in the world, the sons of light and the sons of darkness. And when you go into the historical archive with two categories of the good and the bad, the righteous and the reprobate, the righteous and the sinners, the oppressors and the oppressed, what you end up getting in some cases is a history devoid of nuance, a history in which the evidence is slotted into a predetermined template a history where the conclusions that you already know are the ones that tell you the evidence to select. And so in the particular moment that we are in historically, where we have to hold our own deeply held beliefs up to scrutiny and ask of these beliefs, does the evidence justify them? To turn history into a kind of religious practice where there is a creed that we must obey, whether or not the evidence supports it, is to sacrifice history's ability to cultivate the kinds of democratic skills and dispositions that are absolutely necessary for navigating the cacophony of voices and confusion that we live in today. I want to pick up on uh, some words that you just used. You talked about a sort of disciplinary creed, a way of thinking about the world that's different. Um, You argue in this book, of course, and many people would immediately latch onto this, that history is a discipline. But you suggest that history is a discipline in perhaps more than one way. Like we often think of history as a discipline in terms of, you know, psychology as a discipline or sociology or you know, mathematical sciences. Um, Talk, Sam, about history as a discipline. Because when I listen to you talk, 
I sense a kind of, again, almost religious kind of zeal, right? You know, it's a creed. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way of thinking about the world that's kind of inherently good and moral and virtuous. So talk about that for me. History as a discipline. The word discipline has two meanings. The first one you refer to, John, that it refers to the way that we organize knowledge in the academy according to different disciplines. Chemistry is a discipline. Biology is a discipline. Uh, English literature, in many ways, is a discipline. Computer science has become a discipline. And history, since the end of the 19th century and a little bit earlier, saw itself as a developing discipline with a body of constructs that defined it and ways of inquiry that led a practitioner to have faith in the conclusions that she or he reached. That's one meaning of discipline. But the second meaning of, of discipline is equally important because the opposite of discipline in the second meaning is whimsical or capricious or slovenly or unkempt or untoward. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, discipline means a kind of standard of decorum and a commitment to a set of principles. Now we can ask, what are the set of principles? At the top of that set of principles, I would put the commitment to change one's mind about what one believes about the past when the evidence warrants it. That is the most cardinal virtue of the disposition of a historian. Mm -hmm. A commitment not to be an ideologue, but to go where his or her nose leads and the trail of evidence supports. And in the case where new evidence comes to light, so for instance, the example that I talk about in my book is ways that we and our textbooks portrayed the period of the Cold War at home where the focus was on the smearing of McCarthy and he was loathsome mm -hmm. and the innocent people he attacked he attacked innocent people, and many Americans suffered. But the story that was not told, because we largely didn't know it until the 90s, with the opening up of the Soviet archives by Boris Yeltsin, and then the release of our own documents, our own Venona documents in 1995, through the administrations of, of New York Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, with the corroboration that's now offered by both American archives and KGB archives, we know that spying by Americans who betrayed their country reached the highest echelons of American government, mm -hmm. all the way up to number two at the Department of the Treasury, Harry Dexter White, the father of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. The questions of Alzer Hiss and whether he was really a, a spy or not, you know, that was debated for decades until the KGB documents were opened up Maurice Eiserman, a decorated historian at Hamilton College in upstate New York, who in many ways wrote his career, his early career, was to some extent a very powerful and positive view of American communists in the 1940s as kind of a vanguard against the excesses of capitalism. You have someone like Maurice Eiserman in 1999 basically saying in the face of the evidence about Alger Hiss and other spies, Let's face it, he wrote in the foreword in 1999. Let's face it, the debate just ended. 
And yet, many of our textbooks and many of the materials that we continue to put in students' hands make not a mention of the fact that there was that Americans who betrayed their country succeeded in essentially foisting the biggest security breach in the history of the United States during that time. Actual documents from Los Alamos were smuggled out. This constitutes the biggest security breach in the history of our country, and our students should have a right to know about it. Just to clarify, Sam, is that not in our textbooks because... You know, they just don't know that these things have been found. Or are you suggesting that there is a kind of left-leaning flavor to our textbooks that make this information inconvenient for the writers of the textbook? John, with all due respect, I'm going to toss that question back to you. No one's ever done this before to me on the podcast, but I would, I, you know, I would probably argue the latter, right? I think undeniably that the we can talk about the historical profession as leaning left. Yeah. And so we have a particular irony right now, right? In the midst of our current political struggles, it is the Republicans that are denying Russian interference and the Democrats trying to bring it to light. Right. But when we talk about the way that the Russians penetrated our security and exposed risks and allowed the Soviets to shave anywhere from four to 14 years off of their nuclear program, and that the bomb that they tested in Kazakhstan was a carbon copy of the bomb that was was dropped over Nagasaki, and the, the, raising the historical question of would they have had the temerity to face us off in, in Korea without having the bomb in their back pocket? I mean, this is a, an impossible counterfactual to yep. argue, right? But it's a question we can raise. Um, That is not something that is generally talked about in leftist circles. So you've got this interesting inversion that the left wants to talk about Russian collusion and the right denies it. But when we're talking about what happened in the 40s and 50s, the left denies it and the right wants to, to purvey it. So again, this is my point, though, John, about can I go back to the question of discipline for a second? Yeah. Someone who obeys the muse of Clio, has to put their political leanings aside on this question and say, what does the evidence tell me? That is what makes history a discipline in both senses of the word. Now, see, Sam, I'm with you 100%, but I'm going to push back. When I say this, I have my colleagues tell me, everybody's politically situated. Doing of history is just a big political game you know, we all we all come from a particular perspective and your quest to try to tell all sides is, you know, kind of pie in the sky. It's utopian. Uh, just let it. Why don't you just let it rip? Right. Why don't you just tell a Howard's in or a David Barton view of history? Um, respond to that critique, because I'm sure you've gotten it as well. Well, so let's take a let's let's constrain our discussion just a bit. Let's talk not about broad interpretations, but the question of the establishment of historical facts. Yeah. Is it a fact that Igor Kurchatov had documents, and we can see those documents in KGB archives, of handwritten drawings that explained the theory of implosion and was looking at them years before the Americans tested their first bomb? 
Either that happened or it didn't happen. Yeah. That is what we call a historical fact. John, if you have colleagues that say that facts don't exist, then you are obliged to lead them to the closest state penitentiary both cutters and to unbolt the doors of that penitentiary because every single person in there says there is another side. That argument taken to a reductio ad absurdum means that we have no moral justification for maintaining a judicial system. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I guess my question was more about the kind of stories and narratives that we tell and which voices get more more predominance. That's a question more of historical interpretation necessarily than fact, right? So the question about the Cold War anti-communism stuff you talk about, right? You know, this is a critique of, of the left, right? You're saying, you know, why aren't you allowing this new information to, to permeate the story? It's not a question of denying that that's a fact that, you know, we know there was spying, but how does that fact then fit into the story that we're telling about the past? Isn't that a different question than just simply, you know, this is a fact that it happened, but how you use that fact in your narrative is a different case, right? Exactly. And in that sense, the critique of your colleagues has more merit, yeah. right? That, you know, of course we can't achieve perfect objectivity, right? right? No one of us can achieve the stance from nowhere. But does that mean we should we should engage in a Bacchanalian orgy in which we celebrate our subjectivities? No. To quote the late anthropologist Clifford Gertz, just because we can't achieve a completely antiseptic environment doesn't mean we have to do surgery in a sewer. Right. We should attempt to curb our subjectivities, to develop a hyper awareness where our own commitments takes us in a direction where we are molding and shaping the facts for our own predetermined ends. Yeah, good. I mean, this is stuff I want the teachers to hear. I want our teachers to hear you talk about this. That's why I kind of led you down this road. And I think it's important um, that, especially as we teach, to, uh, to try to be as true to facts as possible. Shifting gears again. Actually, we're going to go back to Google here quickly, Sam. You have a chapter in this book that is entitled, Why Google Can't Save Us. Tell us about your Google experiment with historians and fact checkers, the way they analyze websites. And I would really be interested to know like, what the feedback has been from historians, uh, because you seem to suggest that fact checkers tend to be better readers than, than historians on some things. At least that's what your, your experiment proved. So tell us, why is Google unable to save us? And then, you know, why do you say that based on your uh, social scientific evidence? Well, let me take one step back and give a little bit of historical context here sure. since we're, we're broadly talking about history here. Right, absolutely. So let me tell you the origin story of this work. I was supervising a project by a group of graduate students who were working in a Silicon Valley high school where students were putting together their own textbook. Okay, they were using Apple iBooks and it was active learning and it was PBL, project-based learning and all of the sexy education buzzwords that are very much in fashion at this point. The kids were bright, they were good readers. They had even been exposed to some of our reading like historian curriculum. 
but they were engaged, they were doing a unit on the French Revolution. And one of the things that we observed really kind of kicked us for a loop. These very bright students, when they were putting together what materials that they were finding on their internet into the textbook template of the Apple iBooks, what seemed to determine the choices they made was not the historical authenticity and the weightiness and the documentation of the materials they found, but whether those materials in their size and length fit the predetermined template dimensions of Apple iBooks. Mm. So this really made us wonder, wait a second, what is going on here when students are transferring ways of thinking that they've developed in an analog context and somehow it's not crossing the bridge over to a different digital medium. And that is what initially got us thinking about this. And then as God would have it, uh, we got a call from a foundation in, in Chicago, the Robert McCormick Foundation, that said, hey, we have seen your beyond the bubble assessments, which are on Sheg's website, sheg.stanford.edu. That's where the we Stanford have History Education Group, for those unfamiliar. That's right. And this uh, program officer had been a teacher in a high school, and she had come across our work, and she said, would you come up with a set of assessments for assessing digital literacy? for students' ability to discern what's true and false on the internet. So we did do that. And in 2016, two weeks before the election, we wrote an op-ed about what we were finding. And, and basically, the, the bottom line could be said that our, our digital natives are more aptly called digitally naive. A Wall Street Journal reporter saw that and did a big study, and it coincided with Trump's election of fake news. And pretty soon, we all had our Marshall McLuhan moment where we were you know, sort of swept up in the media maelstrom right. face uh, right, right after the election. Now, to answer your question about the second study, we rediscovered the wheel, John. Yeah. Uh, we were not the first people to challenge this notion of digital nativity and that students are the ones that, you know, have silicon growing from their fingernails and it's all, you know, native language to them. There had been a bunch of other studies showing that. But what we started to puzzle over was, who does this well? Who goes on the internet and within a, a minute is able to detect what's problematic and what's solid and is not wasting and getting lost and tumbling down rabbit holes? And again, I had some good fortune. I met with uh, the chief uh, research scientist of search at Google named Dan Russell. And Dan basically said, you know, that's a question that hasn't been investigated. And I was just shocked. I was just, I couldn't believe that a, that a company that's valued it with a value of Google that they and that they have research wings and they're researching everything that they haven't researched what it is that true cognoscenti of the of their browsers were doing. So um, in a very naive way, I went to people who I thought would be experts. And so there, there, there were three groups in our sample. As you might assume, as your listeners I certainly hope would assume, I went to the group that I've been studying and in some ways engaged in adulation of for close to 30 years, historians, because they know how to deal with conflicting sources. I picked a group of Stanford University students who are not merely digital natives, but are supposedly the digital leaders of tomorrow. And then we went to a group of professional fact checkers at the nation's most prestigious outlets. 
um, between New York City and Washington, D.C. I can't tell you their names, but if you were to guess, you'd be right. So what did we find? Basically, what we found was that when taken out of their areas of specialty, when historians are not asked about history, but are asked to, for instance, investigate a website about minimum wage policy, or to investigate a website that offers information about adolescent bullying and what schools can do about it. They look, and the Stanford students look, well, let let me put it this way. Our original research question was, what do brilliant people do when confronted by dubious information on the internet? And after looking at both the Stanford students and a group of the historians, not all, there were a couple of historians who just shined, but Mm. the majority, eight out of 10, the majority looked much more like the undergraduates than they did like the fact checkers. Mm. And then our research question became, what is it about the internet that turns really smart people in circles? Mm. Now, here's the contrast. The difference between the other two groups and the fact checkers is that Those two groups, when they came to a website they didn't know, they used their powers of critical thinking and careful reading to carefully parse and discern the single site that they were shown. Even though they were told, you know, in the 10 minutes they had, go anywhere you go, Google something else, leave the site, come back to it, do whatever you normally would do to ascertain whether this is a reliable site. We call that vertical reading. They read the internet much like they would read an analog source. Mm -hmm. Fact checkers, on the other hand, did something completely different. When they got to a site that they did not know, and it looked spiffy, and it had a logo, and it had a .org and a 501c3, they intelligently ignored a great deal of information. And to learn about the site, they paradoxically, to learn about the site, they left it. And they engaged in what we call lateral reading, Mm -hmm. opening up new tabs across the horizontal axis of their screen Mm -hmm. and first consulting the broader web before going back to the original source. So again, let let me summarize this by saying the other two groups read the web in the way that we would read an analog source 30 years ago when there was a scarcity of sources. If I got something in the newspaper about the Bermuda Triangle 30 years ago and I didn't know anything about it, I would go to the 22-volume World Book Encyclopedia that we had in my house. There was a scarcity of sources. And so it made a lot of sense to read carefully the sources that you had at your disposal. In this particular instance, we have a very different situation. The web is not a metaphor. The web is literally a web. And the way that you understand a single node in the web is to understand its placement in the broader web. And so in an an age of an overabundance of sources, the most intelligent thing that we can do when we are unsure about the veracity of something that we're looking or an organization that's telling us about a soda tax or about private prisons or about charter schools or about any civic issue that affects us as citizens the most intelligent thing that we can do is not to spend oodles of time on that site if we don't know who produced it, 
but to engage in lateral reading and to Google that site and to find out about it before we take what that site says at face value. It's surprising me that the historians did not do this because, I mean, most historians, they source documents, right? They want to know, you know, what this document is not only saying, but how it's, you know, as you say in your first book or a natural act, you know, what the document is doing, right? How the document fits into sort of a larger framework. I mean, what, what explains this? What does this tell us about historical thinking and historians? But you, you put your finger on a problem, John. Yeah. The students were trying to do, figure out what the document is doing. Yeah. These organizations, which are bankrolled, the minimum wage organization, which has a 501c3, people can go online and look at it. It's called epionline.org. It is run out of a Washington, D.C. public relations firm owned by someone named Richard Behrman. John, there's millions of dollars behind this stuff, okay? That site is bankrolled by the restaurant and hotel industries. The, they, there are people working day and night to make the pros sound official and clear. And so, yes, they're asking what the document is doing. Yeah. And they have, their, they have their play for pay academics writing research reports on the side. Yeah. So it has all of the allure of a kind of think tank, yeah. but it is a PR-funded think tank. Let me tell you what a, a, the head fact checker of a major magazine said to me. She said, the enemy of fact checking is hubris. Yeah. It is thinking that you are smarter than some of the smartest sleuths that are operating on the web today. And so, if anything, these smart Stanford students and some of the historians who were actually from four different universities, these historians and the students suffered from an overabundance of confidence in their native abilities to engage in careful, critical reading. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, get the book, read that chapter. It's, it's worth the price of the book, Why Google Can't Save Us. Sam, our time's just about up here. Um, I have always seen you and your work as almost like a prophet, right? Speaking the truth to... Uh, to the discipline, speaking the truth to teachers and so forth. Prophets tend to uh, usually tell us about the negative, right? And where we need to change. They, they call out our sins or maybe our zins, right? They, they, they confront us about what we're doing wrong and, and how we can save society. Or, But you end this book on a note of hope. Tell us about what makes you hopeful about democracy, the relationship between history and historical thinking and democracy. Why are you hopeful, Sam Weinberg? I'm hopeful, John, because we have witnessed a past quarter century where the only way that we've thought about schooling is the way that schooling can contribute to our economic liveliness and livelihood. And consequently, in both our high schools and our colleges and universities, the order of the day has been a four-letter acronym called STEM, Mm -hmm. Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. STEM was to be our savior. STEM has turned out to be a golden calf because while we were so fixated on STEM, we forgot that democracy does not grow and flourish by itself. Mm -hmm. 
left untended, it decays. And we are witnessing a presidential administration attacks freedom of the press. We are witnessing a movement in American society where one out of every six Americans, according to a study that appeared in the Journal of Democracy by Foa and Monk, one out of every six, I think, millennials said that it would be good or very good if the military took over our government. There is an awareness now, John, that by putting all of our eggs in the STEM basket, we have led to what Yashka Monk calls a disconsolidation of democratic ideals. Mm -hmm. And I think we are waking up that democracy doesn't happen by itself. The American experiment is one of the wonders of civilization. A group of people from all over the world of different colors and different hues who become a nation because they subscribe to a set of ideals, not some type of atavistic uh, ancestor worship, but a belief in freedom and liberty and fairness and that we are a nation of laws, not men. And for a long time, those ideas were given short shrift in our schools. They were not talked about. They were not seen as priorities. And if there's any silver lining in the present political state that we're in, where there are questions raised about our most sacred freedoms, it's that it is rousing us from our slumbers and helping us recognize that we have some important educational work to rededicate ourselves to. And in that sense, I think there's a new spirit that is infusing itself throughout the land and a recognition that democracy doesn't happen by itself. Amen to that. Our guest has been Sam Weinberg. He is the author of Why Learn History When It's Already on Your Phone. Sam, as always, phenomenal conversation. Thanks for taking some time to join us today. It's been my pleasure. You know, I called Sam a prophet, you know, in the conversation. I mean, he really talks with such a sense of urgency, you know, and I, I can really relate to his passion, uh, almost a kind of religious zeal, it seems like, uh, for the role that history and historical thinking can play in on our democracy. And he just really... I mean, we said this in the top of the episode, but both you and I, John, we come to the world of historical thinking and, and the profession of historians primarily because of our love of the classroom. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, frankly, the fact that you love teaching as much as you do is probably the main reason why I'm a historian today as one of your former students. And so it's nice to be in a conversation with someone else who is as equally impassioned about, not just about our, our, our focused historical research, but the actual act of teaching history. Yeah, what strikes, by the way, thanks for the compliment there, Drew. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, the thing that strikes me about Weinberg, right? So he's critiquing Howard Zinn. I'm, I'm guessing that Sam believes all the moral, ethical kind of judgments that Howard Zinn makes. But he's also sort of committed to the discipline, you know, based upon facts and nuance and complexity and so forth. But what fascinates me the most is there seems to be two ways to kind of invoke moral change in a society through history. One is to kind of preach through history, where you, 
you know, every kind of moral injustice you've raised and you talk about, right, you know, look at this, how bad this was and so forth. What Weinberg seems to be suggesting is you produce good, responsible, virtuous, ethical citizens for a democracy by simply practicing the discipline, right? You know, by, by being a truth seeker, by being someone who, who is concerned about facts and evidence. So I think, I think the 2016 election in many ways has confirmed a lot of that approach to evidence because it seems to me like Donald Trump with his lies and so forth does exactly what people on the right accuse the people of the left there, you know, everyone's moralizing, right. But sometimes moralizing goes in a direction where facts don't matter. As long as you get your ethical point across and you marshal certain forms of evidence in the way you want to. And I think Weinberg, and you may disagree, Drew, but rightly so, I think pushes us to consider a more complex and nuanced story that is rooted in the facts. You know, his example of the the spies and the new evidence, right? You know, obviously, obviously there's people on the left that don't like that new evidence. And, you know, if he's right, it's affected the way they've told the story about the past, right? To be a more political story. I think I would tend to agree. And obviously we, you know, our political affiliations don't align perfectly. Although, you know, it we're is close. a it, it is yeah, Venn diagram. We've got plenty of overlap. Yeah. I would argue that many of the commitments I have as a historian, right, I, I don't need to be scared of the facts. The facts right. are on the whole going to kind of confirm some of my assumptions, right? That colonialism is something to be critiqued rather than celebrated, mm-hmm. that America as a nation has been built on the backs of of slave labor yeah. and and that that indictment goes against not just the southern slave owners but also the northern economy right these sorts of big kind of yeah, picture based on evidence yeah, yeah. so I, in in a sense i'm not that worried i'm very taken in this interview by his warning against manichaeism and i think that it's something i'm going to be thinking about a lot and i think i you know I'm pretty sure I agree, and, and I hope that my own work doesn't fall in the, you know, as someone who is a historian of colonialism and is first and foremost going to focus on the agency of indigenous Americans within that context, but I work at a time when Native people were committing pretty heinous acts of violence against white settlers as well, yeah. um, and so that that's something I have to wrestle with. That's, a, that's yeah. a part of the evidence, right, that there are children who are being killed by Native Americans in the, here in, in western Pennsylvania just as there are right. churches organizing around a genocidal mission yeah, and massacring yeah. the, the Indians of Conestoga, which you know, and, is something we've so, talked yeah, about so I a think, lot. I think that's exactly what Weinberg's trying to say, right? You know, to be kind of honest to the historical record whenever we can. And you know, I think he'd be the first to admit, I pushed him a little bit on this about mm-hmm. kind of the, you know, we're all political animals. We're all shaped by our current circumstances, certain ideologies, the way we were raised, whatever. And I don't think he'd deny that. But what is this story about doing surgery? Right. Uh, the Clifford Geertz quote, you know, we might not be able to perform surgery in a perfectly sterile environment, but that doesn't mean we do it in the sewer. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So, you know, I, I think there's still a lot of room to have kind of fair-minded disagreements right. and debates and still be within the framework of sort of being good historians, you know, as to what we emphasize and, and so forth. I love talking to Sam Weinberg. He's a hard one to keep up with, and I mean that in the most complimentary way. He, we should probably tell this little story. I hope he won't mind, but when we got him on, 
he was all excited because he just spent three hours of uninterrupted time writing his latest op-ed, which he's going to pitch to the Washington Post. So we, uh, I don't say we had to listen, but he asked us if we would listen to hear him read the op-ed. So before we came on, before the, I was going to say the tape started rolling, but yeah. before we, we hit play or whatever we do to record this thing, we listened to Sam Weinberg read a significant portion of his recent op-ed piece in the Wall Street. Oh, hopefully it'll be picked up by the Wall Street Journal. Only Sam Weinberg would exactly. start the interview that way. And, he and, wanted and, our opinion. Yeah. And, and to be fair, I thought it was a great pitch, right? I mean, this yeah, yeah. wasn't wasting our time. Actually, it ended up serving as a great uh, sound check opportunity for us right, right. rather than just asking about the weather. Yeah. Go out there and get a copy of Why Learn History when it's already on your phone. I still highly recommend his first book, his first major book, Historical Thinking and Other Unnatural Acts. If you are a history or social studies teacher, you must read this. You must read both of these books. I do not see how you can be a history or social studies teacher in this climate today without engaging with the ideas of Sam Weinberg. Uh, also, check out the Stanford History Education Group um, all kinds of resources there. I use it when I teach teachers. So a uh, great interview today. Always love having Weinberg on. I hope we can get him back on again at some point, maybe when he writes his next book or some kind of other major study that he comes up with. Well, Drew, that's a wrap for episode 52. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening, everyone. And as always, may your way of improvement lead home. This has been a production of The Wave Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Wave Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. Let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at TWOILH Podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, Richard Green, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsors, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future, as well as the Lindhurst Group. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Sam Weinberg. Our studio producer is Abby LaBianca. I'm your producer, Drew Durley-Hermling. And your host, as always, is John Fia. <laughs>